Mark chapter 5, continuing in the Missio Christi series after today, only two teachings left in this series, and then we'll be finished. This is Renew Part 3. It's called Victory. It is Part 3, so I want you to be aware of the other two parts. If you haven't heard them, you need them to have an understanding of this uh, topic that we're talking about, which is demons. We're looking at Mark chapter 5. Two weeks ago when we started in it, we read all 20 verses of the story. Last week, we just read the first five. We'll read a few more this week. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had gotten out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones." And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying with that loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated Jesus saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. Lord, we ask that today you would reveal to us to a greater degree your power and your authority over the demonic realm. Lord, we thank you for this historical account of a man who was desperate and tormented and that you went after him and you rescued and renewed him. Thank you, Jesus, that that's what you do. You came to seek and to save the lost. Thank you that many of us are a testimony of that. Thank you that you are still doing that, Christ that you want to accomplish that in our midst and even through us. We ask that today you would give us understanding about how to handle demonic opposition and the victory that we have in you. Jesus, we ask that in our hearts and minds you would loom larger than ever before, that you would truly be exalted above every other name that is given, that you would reveal your glory your power to us, and give us fresh boldness, Lord, to be on mission for you. 
We ask together, Lord, that you'd please anoint me to communicate your truth, that I would be faithful to your word and I would bring glory and fame to your name. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to draw our attention once again to verse 15 where it says, and they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed but was now sitting clothed and in his right mind, the very man that had a legion. This man was tormented and he has now been delivered. This man has been renewed. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. This man has been renewed by Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've ever witnessed this, if you've seen this in people that have been rescued by Jesus. We're some of these people, this, this renewing, restorative, transformative, beautiful thing that happens in people when they come to Jesus. Have you ever seen it? I've seen it thousands of times. I've seen it immediately. Someone gets saved and, and there's just a, a visible, tangible change in their countenance. You can just see they've been renewed. I've seen it happen over time as people are being renewed by Christ. Many of you, I see it in you. That transformative, renewing, beautifying work of Christ in somebody when they've been rescued. And part of the ministry of mercy of Jesus was that he cast demons out of people. And it's a demonstration that his kingdom had come. And it was a showing forth of the will of God to restore the image of God in humanity, which had been marred by sin. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When Christ came, the kingdom came with him. When Christ came, there is an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And what the inbreaking kingdom of God does is it challenges every other power. It challenges everything that come against, comes against the loving rule of God. It challenges everything that keeps people in bondage. Everything that keeps people from a right and created order. The inbreaking kingdom of God engages and challenges these other claims to power. C.S. Lewis in talking about this says this. Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks that God made the world the space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists, and insists very loudly, on our putting them right again. Christ has called us to a partnership in the process of renewal in his mission to restore, redeem, renew, and set right. He calls us to be a part of that, and that's a fight. That's a battle. Jesus is victorious in the battle. In Mark chapter 5 and in the previous chapter, Mark chapter 4, we see the victory of Jesus on display. We see his power and his authority over the created realm. We see it over nature 
in chapter 4 when he calms the storm. We see it over evil here in chapter 5 when he casts out a multitude of demons. We see it over sickness later on in the chapter when he heals the woman with the issue of blood and we see his power and authority even over death. When toward the end of the chapter, he raises the young girl who had died. In each of these cases, Christ is exhibiting renewal the correcting of something that has gone horribly wrong. And Jesus works these acts of renewal by merely speaking a word. That's, that, that's putting his power and his authority on display. He's correcting things that have gone horribly wrong by merely speaking. In chapter four, it says, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. In our text, it says that he's been saying to the man, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And even when he found out that it was a legion of demons, Jesus was still just speaking his command to them. When he found out it was a legion, it's not as though he like rolled up his sleeves and cracked his knuckles and was like, oh, this is gonna be gnarly. Simply just continues to speak in a display of his power and his authority. Later on in the chapter, when he encounters the woman that needed to be healed, it says that he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And in the raising of the young girl from the dead, it says, in taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus demonstrated his power and authority over all of the created realm with his spoken word. What we see in the Bible is that the words of Christ affected change. The dead were raised, the sick were healed, the demonized were set free, the storms were calm. The word of Christ affected change. And what we need to get now is that the word of God still affects change. That it is living and it's active. That it is called the sword of the spirit and the Bible speaks about a sword. It is an unsheathed sword that is pulled out to do something. The word of God affects change talked about last week, the fact that ideas change and shape history in the world. In the same way, God's ideas, which we call truth, confront and correct all that goes wrong in history and the world. This is why to live a life on mission means that you have to be a truth teller. You have to be radically committed to the truth to proclaiming the truth, telling the truth, defending the truth, explaining the truth. Because God's ideas, which we call truth, confront and correct all that has gone wrong in history and in the world. And the truth about demons is that they are defeated. Truth about, yeah, go ahead, praise the Lord. truth about demons is that they were defeated. The victory was won at the cross, is displayed in history, and will be consummated at the final judgment. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10, speaking of this, tells us that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and tormented day and night forever and ever. For that reason, because devil, the devil and demons know this. In Mark chapter five, verse seven, they said, do not torment me to Jesus. They were terrified at the presence and the power of Christ. 
In the parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, the question they put to Jesus is, have you come to torment us before the time? They're aware that there's a time coming when they will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell. And contrary to popular belief, they will not be the MCs at a party. They will be tormented forever and ever. Mark chapter 1, Jesus encounters another demon, and the demons say, have you come to destroy us before the time? There's a day of reckoning that is coming, and the devil and demons know that they are defeated and that their fate is sealed. We need to know, therefore, that what we see going on in the world is not a struggle of equal but opposite powers. We do not have a dualistic worldview that says there's good and there's evil and they're about the same in power and they're battling out. No, they're not. God is greater than. God is infinitely greater than. Jesus Christ has the victory. It was won at the cross, displayed in history, and will be consummated at the judgment. Demons shudder at the identity of Jesus Christ, James chapter 2. They know who he is and they shudder. Here in our text in verse chapter 6, the demonized man bows before Christ. By every measure, Jesus is the victorious king of glory. Now, this king of glory has brought his kingdom. When the king came, the kingdom came with him. Therefore, we should see and experience victory over evil now. Because the glorious king has brought his kingdom, we should see and experience victory over evil now. But because the kingdom is also coming, it has come, but it's also coming, we will not see the fullness of that victory Yet, what we do see are signs of renewal, but not yet complete renewal. We understand this almost intuitively, biblically, but sort of intuitively if you have a biblical framework here, that, that the work of the cross, so it's finished and complete, it unfolds over history. We get this with how our salvation deals with sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. Okay, the finished work of the cross unfolding there. Three tenses, past tense, have been saved from the penalty of sin. Present tense are being saved from the power of sin. Future tense will be saved from the presence of sin. It is all accomplished, but it is unfolding. We understand this with miraculous healing. Since the kingdom is already, we should experience miraculous healings today. But since the kingdom is not yet, we will not experience complete healing of humanity, renewal, until Christ comes again in victorious glory to renew all things. Some in the church don't quite get this. They think either that miraculous healing should always take place, and if it doesn't, something is wrong, or an equal and opposite error, they think that miraculous healing doesn't take place today. Both parties are failing to understand the already not yet nature of the kingdom. 
Perhaps it would be helpful to think of this in terms of death and Christ's victory over death. Jesus did not only conquer sin, but he also conquered death. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of this extensively. But people still die. He conquered death, but people still die. There's coming a day when nobody will die anymore. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. But that's not yet. Death is defeated already, but it is still present for now. In the same way that sin and sickness are defeated but present. And as it is with sin, sickness, and death, so it is with Satan and demons. They are defeated but still present. And just as we have to deal right now with sin and with sickness and with death, we have to deal with demons. One day we will not, when the victory is consummated, Revelation chapter 20. But now we do. When Jesus ascended, there was still death, sickness, and demons in the world. But their defeat had been made secure and accomplished at the cross. When Jesus descends again, they will then be vanquished once and for all. Newness will come in fullness at that time. But for now, the victory is experienced in signs of renewal that foreshadow the fullness. Signs of renewal, renewal that foreshadow the fullness. Therefore, we should see and experience signs of victory and renewal that are miraculous right now. This is what we see in the Gospels. This is what we see in the book of Acts. We should experience these sort of things. The Gospel is the good news of God's renewal. The gospel is the good news of God's renewal. And we are called to be, do, and tell the gospel. Be, do, and tell the gospel. We're called to, to live out the gospel. We're called to act upon the gospel in the world. We're called to proclaim the gospel to the world. And this action of the gospel going forward of us being, doing, and telling the gospel will always deal with demons. When Jesus went to go preach in Galilee, it says in Luke 4 that demons then came out of many. When Philip went to go preach in Samaria, it says unclean spirits came out of many crying with a loud voice. Jesus sent Paul to preach among the Gentiles that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And because this is a model of scripture, that wherever the gospel goes forward, demons are dealt with, we should then expect opposition. If we're gonna live life on mission, there's gonna be opposition, but we should also expect to see immediate tangible, radical evidence of Christ's victory over evil. That should be normal Christianity. 
signs of God's renewal, people being delivered, circumstances being changed, people being healed, the dead being raised. That ought to be normal biblical Christianity. We should be seeing signs of Christ's kingdom, victory, and renewal. Congruently then, what should also be normal to Christianity and to Christian mission is dealing with demons the way Jesus dealt with demons. Jesus is our model for mission. So how did Jesus deal with demons and therefore display renewal? Well, what we see in our text and what we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus verbally commanded demons to leave. He spoke to them. He commanded them with authority to leave. That's what we see Jesus doing. Subsequently, what do we see the church in Acts doing? They verbally commanded demons to leave. Paul in Acts chapter 16. Jesus did it. So then the church did it. So how should we deal with demons? The primary model that we have from Jesus and the book of Acts is to verbally command and rebuke Satan and demons. This would have been what the disciples saw Jesus do. This would have been what Jesus showed them to do. This would have been what they would then do. And this ought to be what we do when confronted with demons. Whether we're confronted with demons in the sense that there's some demonic presence somewhere in a home or a meeting or or some other locale, verbal command and rebuke to flee. Or if it's like this, in, in a person, verbal command and rebuke to flee. Wherever we encounter the work of demons, the model that's given to us is exerting the authority of Jesus Christ verbally. Now, obviously we think this question, why does God want us to speak directly to demons rather than just pray and ask God to do it? Doesn't that seem like a safer bet? Why would God ask us to speak directly to demons rather than just pray and ask him to do it? That question makes sense, but that's a little bit like asking this. Why do we verbalize and preach and explain the gospel instead of just praying and asking God to reveal it to somebody? It's the same sort of thing. It's like asking this question. Why do we verbally encourage each other Instead of just praying, oh, Lord, encourage her today. Why do we verbally rebuke sometimes people in sin and in error and rebuke error itself and admonish erroneous thinking? Why not just pray, oh, God, take care of that? Because throughout history, God has chosen to work through people rather than independent of people. That's just what God does. And so he's called us to verbalize the gospel. He's called us to verbally encourage, admonish, rebuke. And he has called us to verbally command demons to flee. 
Part of the way that God works through us is prayer. There's no question about it. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us that prayer is divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, the summation of that whole passage on spiritual warfare is we ought to pray at all times. But part of how God works through us is a more direct involvement and action. Wayne Grudem, who is my favorite modern theologian, says this, speaking on this, thereby God enables us to gain the joy of participating in eternally significant ministry and the joy of triumphing over the destructive power of Satan and his demons in people's lives. It's not that God could not deal with demonic attacks every time we prayed and asked him to do so, for he certainly could, and he no doubt sometimes does. But the New Testament pattern seems to be that God ordinarily expects Christians themselves to speak directly to the unclean spirits. That's just a model that we have in the Bible. One other way that we could think about it is like this. There's nothing in scripture to indicate that demons can hear our thoughts or read our minds or our inner dialogue. So if we want to deal with them, we've got to verbalize it out loud. Now, some object to this idea of speaking to demons based on Jude 9. Jude is a wonderful little book right before the book of Revelation. It's just one chapter. So Jude verse 9 says this. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, that creates more questions than it answers. (laughs) But here's the part we care about right now did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So they would say, based on this verse, we shouldn't speak directly to demons because not even Michael did. Rather, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Well, a couple things about that. In context, the passage is not speaking at all about how Christians deal with demons. The passage is addressing in verse three, it says, those who are ungodly and deny Jesus Christ as master. So to take a passage that's talking about ungodly people that deny Jesus Christ and apply it to Christian practice is silly. They are described in verse eight as people who live in moral lives, defy authority, and the problem here, they scoff at supernatural beings, angelic and demonic. It says in verse 10, and this is a point, they have no understanding of spiritual beings. And so they overstep their bounds when they scoff at or revile angelic or demonic beings. Ungodly people who deny Jesus Christ. The reference to Michael the archangel is merely to illustrate that even such a powerful creature did not dare go beyond the authority God had given him. He didn't rebuke the devil in and of himself or in the name of Michael. Rather, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Well, hello, he said. He still spoke to Satan. He invoked the Lord and the Lord's identity and the Lord's name, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. How you deduce from that passage, the context and the content, the idea and the words, that that means we don't speak to demons is a very interesting form of biblical interpretation. 
The lesson of the passage is simply, don't try to go beyond the authority that God has given you. They denied Jesus' master. They didn't have any spiritual authority, but we do. Jesus has invested in us, has given us authority to cast out demons. And he has displayed for us the model of verbally commanding them. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. What do you say? What's this actually look like? Because most of us haven't done this, right? I mean, what does this actually look like to speak to demons and tell them to flee? Well, let's just go to Jesus. What did Jesus do? In the passage before us, in verse 8, he simply said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Very simple, very direct. What, what about Paul? Paul's a great example. What did Paul do? In Acts chapter 16, Paul said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. So what do we say? What do we do? Well, let's look at what Jesus did, what Paul did, and let's be biblical. It's not super complicated. Let's be biblical about it. Jesus directly commanded demons. And then Paul, because he wasn't Jesus, used the name of Jesus to command demons in the same way. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now, when might we do this? We might do this in a context of intercessory prayer. We're praying for others, praying for a situation, a city, whatever it might be. And we're praying... And then we just sense that there's some demonic thing going on that needs to be dealt with. And so we address demons directly. Might be praying to the Lord, intercessory prayer, and then you realize, wait, this demonic thing has to be addressed. And so you command the demons to leave, to go, to leave them alone, to stop that thing, whatever it is. Now, that's a weird concept for a lot of people. And depending on what tribe in Christianity you come from, you're either comfortable with that or very uncomfortable with that. And it can be weird when someone's praying to the Lord and all of a sudden they're talking to the devil. I understand that's like a big shift, like, I do it all the time. I don't know if that helps you. I am weird by definition. But I do it all the time. I, I, I try to frequent circles that do that because it's Bible. So we might do it in the context of intercessory prayer. We might do it in the context of uh, doing it on behalf of someone who seems to have demons working in their life. Directly command the demons to leave them alone. That, that would never be weird. That would just be biblical. It'd be weird to not do that. To see that somebody's tormented by demons and to not do that, that would be weird. We may use scripture when we're doing this, Right? Ephesians 6, 17, again, the sword of the spirit. When Jesus confronted Satan in Matthew chapter four, he used the word of God. So we might use scripture in that, claiming the word of God, standing upon truth of God, speaking the identity of Jesus Christ, the victory of Jesus Christ. We ought to do that. But the idea is that we need to be biblical about it. And we need to be thorough. We need to be thorough. In Mark chapter nine, verse 25, we read this. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Thorough, come out of him, one. And number two, do not enter him again. Last week, I shared with you guys a very risky story of all the demonic manifestations that I had in my home when I lived in Ventura. 
and how I would speak the name of Jesus and rebuke the enemy and it would flee, it would be done for the night, but it would always come back on subsequent and consequent nights, or, or, or um, consequent, whatever. Subsequent nights, consecutive. <laughs> consecutive nights. And it kept coming back and it was going to come back. And so I called for some backups and people in this very church and they came and met with Kate and I there and they, they said to me, well, have you ever told it not to come back? Hmm. Wow, what a novel idea. That's what Jesus did in Mark chapter 9. Told him not to come back. I said, that's too simple. That can't possibly work. We prayed that night. We rebuked the devil. Leave, go from here, and don't ever come back. And it never came back to that house again. That's just Bible. The authority to do these things is found in the name of Jesus Christ. And when I say name, we mean the identity, okay? It's found in the identity of who Jesus is. The name, the identity, the person of Christ is the key. Not as some magical incantation, which we often do with our prayers. You know what I mean? We pray something and then we're like, oh, you better say in the name of Jesus at the end. My daughter Daisy is like, hardcore about this. If I'm praying at dinner, I don't always say in the name of Jesus. I always mean, I, the only reason I could approach the throne of God is because the identity of Jesus, but it's not some little magical incantation like, I said in the name of Jesus, God, you got to do it. <laughs> at home, I'll be praying. Sometimes I'll pray for dinner and then I'll just say amen and Daisy's like, oh. <laughs> that prayer is not going to work. <laughs> you didn't say in the name of Jesus. But it pertains to who he is, his identity, and our being truly identified with him. It's not some little thing you tack on the end to make stuff work. Somebody tried that in Acts chapter 19, if you want to go there very quickly. Acts chapter 19. An awesome passage, we'll start in verse 11 of Acts 19. It says, And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Okay, admittedly there, there's a different model than the verbal command. So if you got a hanky, with Jesus juice on it. You can try mine after service. I, if you got the hanky happening, you don't have to do the verbal command. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> Verse 13. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Okay, there's a misuse, trying to use the name as a magical incantation. Verse 14 tells us what happens. And the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man 
in whom was the evil spirit, leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So it's not merely tacking it on. It is the true identity and person of Jesus Christ and our being truly identified with him. Not the Jesus that someone else preaches, but the Christ who we know, who we're identified, who we proclaim. So that when the name of Jesus is invoked correctly as the one who we ourselves worship, we ourselves preach and see as supreme and our identity with him is authentic, then we can rightly exercise his authority. When it comes to living life on mission, God wants us to use what he's given us. If he's given us gifts, he wants us to use them. Resources, he wants us to use them. A sphere of influence, he wants us to use it. If he's given us authority in the demonic realm, he wants us to use it. And he has given you, Christian, authority to command demons. He gave it to the 12 disciples in Mark chapter 3 to Mark chapter 6. He gave it to the 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10. And he gave it to every believer in Mark chapter 16, where verse 17 says this. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. This is a model of Jesus. This is a model of the book of Acts. And this was a practice of the church after the book of Acts. Here's an example from Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, died in the early third century around 220 AD. He said, all the authority and power we have over evil spirits is from our naming the name of Christ. And recalling to their memory the woes with which God threatens them at the hand of Christ, their judge, and which they expect one day to overtake them. Fearing Christ in God and God in Christ, they become subject to the servants of God and Christ. So one touch and breathing, overwhelmed by the thought and realization of those judgment fires, they leave at our command the bodies they have entered unwilling and distressed and before your very eyes put to an open shame. It's just what Christians do because of who Jesus is. The identity of Jesus is always the issue. Therefore, demons in the world will always attack the identity of Jesus. This is why we have liberalism. This is why we have cults. This is why we have the new age. This is why we have distortions of scripture. They're always going to attack the identity of Jesus. This is why if you're going to live life on mission, you must study, know, and preach the word of God. You must have the word of Christ dwelling rich in, richly in you. You've got to be able to explain who Christ truly is, to defend who Christ truly is, to proclaim that to the world. Because Satan is always putting forward a different Jesus and a different gospel. The identity of Jesus is always the issue. So this is where demons will always attack. And this is how demons are revealed. 1 John chapter 4 gives us this little tidbit. It says, by this you will know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Every spirit that says Jesus Christ came in the flesh, this actually works. I mean, it's the Bible, so we would expect it to, but it's a little interesting, isn't it? One time I was confronted with demons in a parking lot, and uh, I was with an older Christian. And we just, it was a person, and they seemed demonized. It seemed like there was demonic stuff going on, and uh, we, we, we weren't having a lot of success dealing with it. Couldn't really tell, couldn't be sure. And the older Christian said to me, do the first John 4 test. I was like, what's the first John 4 test? <laughs> I, I didn't get there yet in the one-year Bible. I'm still in. <laughs> Ask them to say that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They couldn't say that. They could say lots of other things about Jesus. They could not say that. And we cast the demon out that day. Just last week, one of our staff members was um, casting demons out of a person right here in this room. Multiple demons came out. The young staff member felt that there was still demons to deal with. There had been a visible change in this person. You could tell that they had been set free to some degree, but they felt that there were still demons to, to deal with. They were having a hard time getting at that. And so he simply asked him to say this. Say that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And the young man said, I want to say it, but they won't let me. I want to say it, and I can't say it. And they cast more demons out of the guy and the guy was set free in the name of Jesus. I mean, this is just Bible. And the identity of Jesus is always the issue. So that we say, the basis of our authority is because of his identity, his finished work on the cross, and our identity in him. The basis of our authority is based on the identity of Christ, the work of Christ, and our being identified with Christ. The identity of Christ, Philippians chapter 2. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The identity of Christ is powerful over every created being. Christ's work on the cross, Hebrews 2.14, tells us that Jesus took on flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 2.15 tells us that Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And because the blood of Christ speaks of the cross of Christ, we read in Revelation 12, 11, that while in conflict with Satan in the world, the saints said that it says this about the believers. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. So our authority over demons is based on the identity of Christ, the work of Christ, and then finally, our identity in Christ. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Meaning we are kids of the king. And then 2 Corinthians 5 
20 calls us ambassadors in Christ. So we are kids of the king and we are servants of the king. Both of those always come with authority. Because of the identity that we have with Christ, we are entrusted with authority. Therefore, because Jesus is victorious over them in a radical way that causes them to shudder and bow before him, we are able to face demonic opposition without fear. 1 John 4, 4, you're from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, meaning the enemy. 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power. Ephesians 6, 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. James 4, 7 and 1 Peter 5 promise, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says that our weapons are divinely powerful with God. And Ephesians 6, 16 says, we have the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We have these promises of victory over the enemy. But sometimes it's still hard. Of the dozens of demons I've cast out of people, there have been a couple instances where I've been unsuccessful. This was true of the disciples as well. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a crowd gathered. He walks up and says, what are you guys talking about? What's going on? A man in the crowd says, my son is demon-possessed, and I brought him to your disciples to cast the demon out, and they were unable to do it. Jesus does two things. Well, he does three things. Number one, he rebukes the disciples for their unbelief. It was a faith issue that they weren't able to do this. They had done it before. Mark chapter 6, they were sent out to do this, given authority. They'd done it before. They weren't able to do it now as a faith issue. Jesus then commands the demon verbally to leave, and it leaves. And then later on in the story, around about verse 29, Jesus says to them, this kind only comes out by prayer. Because he connected that with faith, I don't think that Jesus meant what you should have done with this demon is pray instead of verbally rebuke it. I don't think that's what he's saying because Jesus himself came and verbally rebuked the demon. I think that what he's saying is that the disciples had needed to have been practicing a lifestyle of prayer that yields strong faith. The boys just weren't on their game. They weren't walking in the fullness of the power of the Spirit. The truth is, you want to be effective in mission, you have to be practiced in prayer. Our spiritual condition is largely determined by our prayer lives and is a major factor in our success in dealing with demons. And the last thing I'll say is this. It's not enough to merely expel demons. We have to also install Christ, if I could use that language. It's not enough to just expel demons. We have to install Christ. Jesus speaking, Matthew chapter 12. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Again, that creates more questions than it answers. Verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. 
Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. I think the idea is that it's not enough to merely expel demons, but we have to install Christ. We need to preach Christ and the gospel, pray Christ into a situation, urge the person to be saved through the repentance of sins and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because that second part is so necessary, this is why, in my humble opinion, many current Ministries of mercy and nonprofit organizations who are not gospel centered, in my humble opinion, are falling short. Because it's not enough to merely confront and expel evil, but we must bring Christ through the gospel into the situation, or it only gets worse. We've got to be gospel centered. We have to be Christ and gospel-centered and we have to have gospel-bold humility. Christ and the gospel are our only hope when it comes to demons because it's all about him and his identity. We're humble about it, right? We don't make a big show of casting out demons. Just humble about it. And yet we have this radical boldness that's not afraid of it. Jesus was a lion and the lamb. And pride is Satan's sin. It ought not to be the church's. And we need to rejoice about the right things. Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, or the, the scriptures say, the 70 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. What we get excited about is that we are identified with the glorious king who is in the process of renewing all things and that he has invited us into that process and that we are his. And in the end, he wins. He always wins. Christ wins. Amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus, thank you for your victory. We simply ask that you would manifest more of your victory in and through our lives. We ask that you would teach us to walk in spiritual authority. You would make us bold and humble. Lord, that we be spiritually fit. That we be practiced in prayer. We be walking in the spirit. We want to see people delivered, set free, healed, restored, and renewed in our cities. We know that you've choose, chosen to do that through us to a large degree, Lord. So work in us these things. If you need help this morning, if you need help with demon stuff, prayer team is up here. There'll be pastors and elders up here. We'll deal with that with you. Otherwise, uh, we should get on our face before Jesus 
Even the demonized man bowed before Jesus. Up here, it ought to be like the 405 at rush hour. We ought to be all over each other, just a pig pile for Jesus up here because he's such a glorious king. Amen? Let's do these things.